So wanted to start off the episode with a shout out to Alicia, who is the newest member of the Patreon shout out here. She's been a great supporter, helped actually inspire the pink training for ultra rap. So thanks, Alicia. On the topic of Patreon, we now have a film supporter tier for $3.15 per month. It's a great way to support the podcast along with my upcoming film release, The Funny Runner, on YouTube. So for that new tier, as an extra thank you, you will be able to see the film one week prior to its public release. Plus, we're doing an exclusive before and after conversation with Brittany Charbonneau. Hopefully, we can inspire a lot of people with this film. And if not, if that Patreon tier isn't for you, no worries. Trust me, I get it. These are tough times for a lot of people. But the public release of The Funny Runner will be April 16th on YouTube. I'm trying something different with this idea to see if support via Patreon can make free releases on YouTube viable. So I'm rolling out a lot of behind-the-scenes content to Patreon supporters on our closed Facebook group. And I'm rolling out a lot of new content to YouTube. So check it out. Subscribe. Yeah, really appreciate it. We got a cool conversation. Uh, this is an episode you know, of an astrophysicist. So we nerd out a little bit. Katie Melbourne, she is Yale-educated. Um, so it's fun to, to dive in, ask her, drill her on if she's part of a secret society. We talk about dark matter, even aliens. But what she does today is she works on a team that's in charge of the alignment of the mirrors for the new James Webb Space Telescope. So this will be the largest, most powerful, complex space telescope ever built. And it's it's going to be launched into space. But it's going to fundamentally alter the way humanity understands the universe. It'll probably likely impact our view of ourselves. This is something that touches everyone, no matter where you live or any of your background. Like This is going to be really big. Um, the telescope is going to be launched into space, I think, the end of October of this year. It's going to be able to look back in time uh, to very, very early, early times that we've never seen before with Hubble. And so... To put in perspective, Hubble, which definitely changed humanity's view of the world, um, it was launched in 1990. So just think about how much different a computer is from 1990. I'm not even sure what the, the names were, probably the Lisa 2. I, I, I can't remember, but just think of dial-up and AOL Messenger. AOL Messenger was popular in 1997. That was seven years from when Hubble was launched. So we have a heck of a lot more technology available. This is going to be super complex. And Katie is part of this team that's in charge of the most important part of a telescope, the alignment, making sure things are in focus, which was a problem with Hubble. And with Katie, we also get to talk about her running background. She's also a runner. So she is training for her very first 50 miler. She's never done a 50K. And we get to hear some of her background, some of her training. And we get to eventually follow up with her and see how her first attempt at a 50 miler goes. And I'll, I'll actually probably do a, 
uh, YouTube video uh, interview with her as a follow-up to this conversation. But I'm incredibly blessed. I'm very thankful to get to talk to people, in a lot of cases, changing the world. And I put Katie in that category. I think she is changing the way we see ourselves, every person on the planet. And when you impact that many people, I can't help but reach out and have a conversation with you. Hopefully, you guys enjoy this episode. My name is Katie Melbourne. Welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Liftoff. Liftoff. If we could just free ourselves of our perceived limitations and tap into our internal fire, the possibilities are endless. I'll tell you about it when it happened in the race, but to be honest with you, it happened even before the race. It happened in the training. A great cause. Oh, thank you. I respect that, man. So you keep doing what you do, it, man. Keep inspiring. Jam Jam, Jamil Curry here from Aravipa Running, and welcome to the Training for Ultra podcast. For all you kids out there, stay safe and stay strong. Hey everyone, it's the Training for Ultra podcast. Scott Jurek here at the 10th Wheatmire. Run a few Western states in the days. I was physically totally wrecked. I, I had nothing left. I figured I might as well move as quickly as possible towards the finish line if I was going to be moving towards it anyways. How do you even do that? Decided if I could, you know, finish a 50 miler, I could probably run across the country. Right now, I'd say that my beers per day is still higher than my miles per day <laughs> that I'm running. 100 miles is not that far. Hey, this is Carl Meltzer, the Speed Goat, and I want to welcome everybody to the Training for Ultra podcast. Welcome to episode 161 of the Training for Ultra podcast. My name's Rob. I also go by Training for Ultra. We have a great episode. We're talking to Katie Melbourne. I love this episode. I'm calling it preparing for launch because Katie really is preparing to become an ultra runner and she's preparing for the launch of the web space telescope. So I'd like to start off by thanking the show sponsors. Big thank you to Exoskin. They are a annual supporter of the podcast. I really enjoy working with them, but this company makes some of the most high-tech yarn available and this allows Things as simple as your socks don't smell after you throw them in a bag, you drive a few days or, you know, you travel. So there's odor control, there's heat reduction, there's quick drying, there's rapid wicking, there's friction management, there's all this technology. And what's nice is all you have to do is put on the sock. You don't have to know all, all about the technology. I've had really good luck with all my gear from them and highly recommend the listener check that out. I'll leave a link in the show note for discount code. So really appreciate them. Really appreciate Hammer Nutrition. They've been a longtime supporter. Again, check out the show notes for you know the best discount code that I can find or referral code for Hammer Nutrition. Katie, welcome to the podcast. I mean, this is an exciting episode. I don't think we've had an astrophysicist on before, but thank you for joining me. Of course, I'm so excited to talk about running and space and everything. I'm I'm equally excited to talk about both. I mean, so I'll I'll open it up here. Have you 
ever run an ultra marathon? I have not. So yeah, so actually my Twitter bio and everything still says ultra marathon or in training, but kind of owning that word is helping me get through my training and preparation for it. Um, yeah, so I've ran two marathons before, a handful of halves, I think about four, and it's it's complicated because of COVID times. Um, so I've ran a, a few more than that, actually. Um, and my first 50-miler will be in March, uh, the Prairie Spirit Trail Ultra in Kansas. 50-miler? Yes. Why are, you, why are you so ambitious, Katie? <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 by the way, if you look at Katie's resume, uh, well, don't because you'll just feel bad about yourself. <laughs> And that's everyone listening, basically. But why are you so ambitious? Why are you going for a 50 miler right out of the gates from Marathon? You know, my friends ask me the same thing quite often. Um, I remember when I got this idea in the fall. So I moved to Colorado last March in the middle, well, the start of the pandemic. Um, And I was really kind of in the worst shape of my life. And then Colorado led me to be very adventurous. Um, so I was at the point in the fall where I was like, you know, I think I'm ready for something more. And I considered running a marathon like I had a couple years ago, but I wanted to do something that I really wasn't sure I could finish. So my friends actually talked me down off of a 100 K. Um, and they said, maybe start with a 50 K. And I said, you know, I think I could actually probably finish a 50 K. I really don't know that I can finish a 50 miler. So I, it was kind of my compromise when I was telling everyone that, you know, I really want to run an ultra. Um, they were encouraging about the 50 miler after I had to come out with the hundred K. So that's kind of how I settled on that. Um, and I gave myself about eight months to prepare for it. And so I'm, I'm two months away now. So I have to ask you, is this almost like a a way you live your life by setting goals that are almost out of reach, almost scary? Like how did that play a factor in any of this? Yeah. So I definitely, um, I have a couple mantras. One of them is just, um, being really consistent when I'm, I'm trying for my goals. I guess that's not really a mantra, but it's some, it's a way I live my life is when I have a goal, I work consistently for it. So consistency over everything. Um, and, but the biggest mantra I have is do something that scares you every single day until it doesn't, I should, I should preface, do something worthwhile that scares you. Um, and for different people, that's different things. Uh, a half marathon can be really scary for some people. It could be totally different than running. Um, I know for, for me, rock climbing is also really scary and I really wanted to try it. So I just, you know, walked into the gym one day and, you know, said I wanted to try rock climbing. And so here I am up on a boulder wall, 15 feet high and didn't really know at all what I'm doing. Um, and I'm scared of heights and it was, it was awful, but yeah. So if I do something that scares me every single day, that's a surefire way way to know that I'll keep improving and, um, that I won't be stagnant and I'll be able to find things that interest me. Um, in the future. So. Are, you, are you still scared of running? Yeah, honestly. Um, I still feel severely anxious before many of my long runs because, and I, I've really tried to think about why, you know, whether I'm scared of like the pain or scared of being bored or scared I might get lost depending on what trail I'm at um, or get injured. I, I guess my it's brain mount, just, It's mountain lines. Yeah. Oh, mountain lines. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if you f- still feel that at all, but you know, there's so many different things that can happen, and my brain just runs through all of them um, because that's just how it works. And so, yeah, it's still scary, um, especially because you can compare yourself to others, and I'm not like the best runner. 
um, but I'm still out there. So. I I turn my brain off. I mean, that's how I cope. I've, yeah. I've learned to meditate, even if it's a three-mile, four-mile run, and that's kind of how I cope personally. But um, I really like that mantra kind of way of viewing life. Just keep doing something that scares you every day that's worthwhile until I think eventually you're not going to be scared at all. Um, right. So your, I mean, I was joking. I, I shared on the Patreon closed Facebook group that I was speaking with you. I gave him a little bit of background. I was like, yeah, this person could potentially be president someday. Like <laughs> your, your background stellar <laughs> and no pun intended. Thank um, you. <laughs> you, you grew up in Iowa. Is that correct? Yep. Iowa. And were you playing every sport out there were you a runner back then yeah so my journey in athletics has you know I, I feel like most kids start doing a bunch of different things so I definitely you know learned how, learned how to swim and I played soccer and did all that um, my main sport actually from age four to ten was uh, competitive figure skating so I was really into that um, but I decided that I had always played tennis over the summers ever since I was three. Um, my grandparents have a tennis court in their backyard in California. And so they'd trade time on the court for, um, a local tennis professional with her students in exchange for free lessons for the grandkids. So when I was out there, um, visiting my grandpa and grandma, I'd always get free lessons over the summer. Um, so I kind of really grew up with tennis as just a cultural background for me. And so around 10, when I quit figure skating, I played tennis competitively and did that all through high school. And so when I got to high school, I actually said, hmm, you know, I need to get stronger. I'm, you know, 13, really skinny, don't have any strength on me. Um, what's a way to do that? Well, running. And I'd never ran more than a mile. So I, I joined the, the high school cross country team and really got my butt kicked that summer um, getting into that. But it, it, it made me have to control my shots on the court because I had all this new leg strength that my coach needed hmm. to help me learn how to deal with that, actually. All that footwork. Mm hmm. It's yeah. underestimated. I don't miss yeah. that. <laughs> um, I mean, have you been competitive? Like literally from day one, do you have a brother and sister that are pushing you? Where, where did all this competitive side of you come from? That's a really good question. I guess I haven't really thought as much about that. I have a younger sister, um, and she's my best friend. Um, and we do so many different things. So, you know, I play clarinet, I played clarinet in high school. She played flute and I did tennis and she did ballet. So we were always, you know, in and out of, similar things, but different overall. So sports and music, but different, um, among those groups. So I'd say we were more supportive than competitive with each other. Um, but I think most of my competitiveness comes from setting a super high bar for myself. Sometimes that can lead to really, you know, making things more challenging on myself when I, you know, feel like, no matter what I do, it's not good enough. Um, but it's that competitive drive definitely comes from within, I think. And then I'll rephrase the initial question, like, where does your drive come from? Why, why is the bar have to be so high for you? 
Because it, it really seems like you're born with this drive that isn't isn't normal, um, which I love. That's why I'm talking to you. Um, where, where's this coming from? Yeah, um, there's a <laughs> there's a lot of ways that I probably hang on. I'm gonna I'm gonna restart that that thought. Take two. Yeah, so I think. It comes from a lot of, you know, sorry, I think society tells me that uh, for a long time that I really needed to um, succeed for some reason. When you're told when you're young that you have a lot of potential, I think you really tend to internalize that. And it actually is something that I had to teach myself to let go of a little bit in a way. Um, so keep the, the aspects of my drive that make me a better person while also removing some of the aspects that, you know, make it very difficult to deal with day-to-day stuff without a lot of anxiety, if that makes sense. Um, so when you're told you have a lot of potential when you're young, you really want to live up to that. And then you set the bar high for yourself when you accomplish something. And then you just want more and more and more. And so it can tend to kind of spiral. Um, so now the way I kind of deal with that is setting goals in diverse areas, whether it be running or my career, I just constantly am working towards smaller goals in a bunch of different things. Um, so that way I'm not constantly, you know, jumping over a bar that's way too high for myself, um, and going for the the best thing I can possibly do. Do your, do your interests cycle? Like, will you go through periods where, like, a few months you're super interested in this, and then it cycles through to something else, and then you actually come across those same topics? Yeah, so I, I actually thought that that was the case. I think my interests, more than cycle, they they wander. So I have the same core values and core interests, I think. I've carried those through um, throughout my time in high school, college, and now professional world. Um, but I do think that those have guided me in different ways. The easiest example is in my career where I'm interested in space. And so I, you know, naturally I'm thinking, oh, I want to be an astronomer. And then I discover that, um, you know, there are alternative career paths to just doing research for your entire career. So I discovered science policy and then I discovered business and, um, engineering. And so I kind of maneuvered through there where I kept the same core interests and instincts, but let it, let my curiosity grow and kind of follow that instead, if that makes sense. It does. Your, your, your perception on time and space is probably pretty rare also, not to go down that avenue quite yet, but I, there's yeah. very few people that I've talked to that have a plan out to 2028. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever met anyone that's thinking really that long term for you know personal programs and where they're taking their career in life. So your college experience, I mean, what what impact on your running did college have and and also how you ended up getting in the field that you're ultimately in now? Yeah, so college definitely was transformative. Uh so I started at Yale in August of 2015 after graduating high school. Um and I definitely came in with what I thought was a strong identity. 
in high school, I went to a public high school in Iowa. That's a fantastic school. Um, I had a lot of great friends and support and mentors there, um, including my high school cross-country coach, which I'd, I definitely would love to talk more about that experience because they were absolutely um, transformative in my running experience. Um, but I got to college and, you know, I was the astronomy girl from Iowa and people back home knew me as the girl who wanted to study space um, because there weren't there weren't really any others. Um, and so I had this super strong identity as a clarinet player, as a runner, as a tennis player and as the space girl. And I realized that I was no longer the only one who had any combination of those things you know there were incredible musicians who were also a plus students um at school and you know i also had to deal with failing um on some of my tests for the first time i remember getting my first grades back and they were they were not great um and so i really struggled with the whole identity side of things and kind of lost sight of who i was for a little bit um, just trying to stay afloat in college. Uh, so running and everything else kind of fell by the wayside. Did you and try to get into to Harvard and the other Ivies? Applying did you, did to, you get into the other <laughs> other Ivies? Yeah, I, I, I applied to 12 schools and got into Harvard and Yale and Berkeley were my top three. Um, and I got into those, um, but I applied to Yale early. So it was definitely my top choice. So you, you chose Yale over Harvard. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Purely for a cultural thing. Um, I visited Yale and all of the students there said, oh, I, you know, I'd asked them why they chose Yale. And they said, well, there's this really cool club that I do that I never thought I would do in college. Um, but, you know, I just picked up and learned how to dance. And now I'm in this dance club. And or, you know, I, I can learn from this particular professor. And they were able to name such specific things. That's whereas amazing. Harvard. Yeah. I, I don't actually want to diss Harvard. <laughs> but yeah, when I went to Harvard, it was more, it seemed like more of a grad school, um, for sure. They have a fantastic astronomy department, fantastic astrophysics department, but it seemed like the school the school's focus was on truly quality graduate education versus undergraduate. I mean, I could only dream of getting into those schools. My, my dyslexic background doesn't let, my standardized test scores were just awful and ironically i think my best friend went to brown like he yeah i i hung out with very bright kids um that all could you know nail those tests but testing for me uh there needs to be more support for learning disabilities as well and um just mental health in general um because dyslexia shouldn't preclude you from being able to have this a similar experience but i, I completely understand yeah. yeah, it's hard for sure. Um, I, I mean, I I can only relate to having been invited potentially here to to speak with the uh, the female. I think it's the row club. I think it's or the crew crew club. Oh yeah. Um, the deal was I I could potentially get a speaking gig with them if I finished the triple, which I still need to have that person live up to that offer. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but what was your experience though? You you're excelling off the charts. Now you're having a moment of who am I? How do you regroup? How does running help you regroup? And I mean, ultimately, how do you find your way through? Yeah. Um, I 
actually had a very unique opportunity after my first year of college. I knew I wanted to do research and I also knew I wanted to study abroad, but it's very difficult to do as a STEM major. So I decided to design my own research experience um, at the University of Chile. Um, there are connections between the two colleges, so University of Chile and Yale, um, but there had never really been an opportunity for undergrads to go. So I emailed professors until someone was willing to take on a random 18-year-old with a little <laughs> bit, only a little bit of research experience. Um, and I got to go to Chile for nine weeks and observe in the Atacama Desert um, different stars that had exoplanets around them, which are just planets that orbit stars beyond our sun. Um, and I was able to do my own independent research. And so through that, I realized that I loved research, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a professor in astronomy anymore. So that was another identity crisis my sophomore year of college. Um, and through that, I decided I was going to take a semester off, regroup, and explore a different path of um, of my career. So I um, decided to do international relations internship at NASA headquarters the spring of my uh, sophomore year, so spring 2017. And during that time, I wasn't taking classes or anything else. And I was also part of a nonprofit where I was a counselor at a camp for kids who have parents with cancer. And we needed to raise money for that. And I had seen a lot of my friends at the University of Iowa raise money um, for uh, their like a similar organization by doing marathons. Um, so they would run a marathon and they'd have people sponsor every mile of their training and like they'd post about it and use like their training as a way of raising money. And so I was like, wait, I, I should do that during my semester off. So that spring was truly transformative because I got to see a new career path and take a break from school and kind of come back at it with a fresh perspective while also training for a marathon that I had committed to in order to fundraise. But then I realized that I just really enjoyed it for its own sake um, and came back that fall, ran the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C., um, limped through the half due to like the second half because of an injury. And, um, but at that point I was hooked and I knew I was going to keep, keep running from there. Um, so it truly grounded the rest of my college experience to have that time off both for my career and for my personal health. So I'll ask you one of the, I, I don't want to say it's the most strange follow-up question of all times, but no one's going to ask this question. How many times did you receive an email saying, and this is for your initial study in Chile, mm -hmm. you know, we're interested, but sorry. Like, how many times did you fail until you got that opportunity? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, Katie got into Yale and then she got to study or she got this awesome internship at NASA. I want to hear about the, you know, Underneath the surface, how much work, how much failure goes into creating those opportunities for yourself? I think that's so important to talk about. Um, so as far as <laughs> when you're trying to do research with someone, the way you do it is usually you scour websites um, for different departments you want to work at. And you read all about the professors and you, you don't know these people other than the work that they've done. Um, and so it takes a lot of guts to cold email people. And that's the biggest way I've gotten places in my career is just I take a genuine interest in what someone is doing. I reach out to them. 
And so the failure is more in never getting a response, which is almost super, it's, it's very scary in a way, just because you're putting yourself out there and then someone doesn't necessarily respond to you. And so that, that was kind of tough. I emailed probably a dozen professors before someone responded and it took probably four months. I came to my advisor at Yale in September saying I wanted to go to Chile and it wasn't until the end of January that I had heard back from someone. And I was consistently trying to make that connection happen. Um, and as far as classes go, I, I have, there wasn't a year that went by in college where I didn't question if I was cut out to be a physicist and it still happens today in my career. Imposter syndrome is really real. Um, but yeah, it's fresh freshman year and on, I would get C's on some of my physics and math exams and, um, I'd have to work really hard and go into office hours and still get 50% on homeworks and try to figure out what I was doing wrong. And I even had to drop a class. Um, I had to drop multivariable calculus, which is a really hard thing to admit as a physics major. It's like, oh, you know, I struggled in a class that's foundational for what should be the rest of my career. Um, but luckily the people that kept me going were mentors who said, you know, you can still be a physicist if you retake multivariable calculus. Um, and you can still be a physicist, even if you don't get any responses for research for the summer. Um, so finding someone in your support network that really is an advocate, but also just is there when you're at your lowest is super important. I mean, I know it's cliche, but I don't think Einstein was acing anything, uh, math related at least. Um, <laughs> What other experiences were instrumental in in college for you? I think a big aspect of it was realizing my interest in science policy. And so I was able to carve out a niche for myself where I could go take a class in policy and relate it back to my interest in science. So one of the most transformative aspects of my college experience, and this is extremely unique to the, the school I went to, is this program called Grand Strategy. And so this is a more on the career aspect of things. Um, I formed such a strong bond with that class. So it's, it's a year-long course that starts in January, ends in December, um, and basically talks about political theory and how it intersects with diplomatic practice. And the way we look at it is we, we read a bunch of you know, old texts that are about um, these these big conflicts. Um, so achieving great ends with limited means. So like Thucydides and The Art of War by Sun Tzu and all of these books. Um, we even read social justice movement um, books as well. So Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Um, and then we would meet with people who were actually doing the work. Uh, so diplomats in the U.S. government and people like Samantha Power, who was U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under Obama and James Comey came and visited with us. And so I constantly was a, I was actually able to ask these people questions that related to space and policy. And um, so so the fact that I was able to carve out that niche really impacted my career um, and impacted my the rest of my time in college and, and gave me a way of. Um, expressing myself and getting confident in something and, and telling myself that I knew something that was valuable, if that makes sense. I, I feel like that's actually a pretty famous class. I don't know why I've heard of that before. Yeah, there's a book by John Gaddis, who was one of the original founders of it, called On Grand Strategy. And it talks all about different examples in which people used great ends or limited means to achieve great ends. Interesting. Yeah. Um, were there any other social circles 
that you know you, you took a part of that affected you? Yeah. So I I'm totally I'm totally queuing this one up. I'm sorry. No, you're good. <laughs> out of pure selfish interest. Um. So. <laughs> Um, well, there are several in college. I mean, so if we want to get, I mean, there was the marching band, um, which was really impactful my first two years, but then became very difficult because I didn't want to spend 15 hours at a football game and then the next day run four hours by myself. Um, I just would never have studied because there's the essential post long run nap. So it's actually more of like a six hour commitment um, for me on Sundays. I just lay on the floor ground yeah. for a while yeah. you can't be an ultra runner without running <laughs> without needing to lay on your kitchen floor after a run <laughs> yeah so marching band was definitely impactful for my first couple years before it became too much of a challenge to keep up with running and then I switched over to women in physics so finding a cohort among um you know women in particular who were studying what I was studying um in a very male dominated field was super important and I wouldn't have made it through the major without them and then there was my sorority which I never thought I would do in college but a lot of my stem friends were actually in um this sorority called Kappa Kappa Gamma and I ended up having had the most leadership experience um so they asked me to be president and I was able to be president 2019. So that's when, you know, I was able to form bonds with younger women and kind of serve as a mentor um, in some ways and also learned a lot on conflict management. Um, but it was a f- fantastic transformative experience um, as well. So that that's my biggest. That's uh, awesome. Circle from I, I think women in physics, it, was this a group you put together? I mean, honestly, it's it's unbelievable the concept and everything i'm i'm surprised it doesn't actually get it might have been in the press quite a bit but it it seems like one of those ideas like man like when you sign on to twitter and you see someone with like half a million followers and ted talks and stuff like this is this is an idea where i can you know i i can see women in physics being something like huge. Oh, yeah. So actually I'm very lucky to have been a part of it. So women in physics chapters are generally at colleges across the country. I think it's definitely a growing thing. So the American Institute for Physics, um, or sorry, the American Physical Society, APS, um, has a whole women in physics organization and chapter. So um, a big part of me being involved in women in physics is helping out with our conferences that we'd attend every year. So there's regional conferences that all meet at the same time in January across the country for all of the women in physics chapters across the country as well. So you'd get to meet, we'd have like a Northeast one for all of the Northeast schools and we'd get to meet women from, you know, New York and Vermont and Uh, Massachusetts and we'd all come together and it'd be like wow you know there's so many shared experiences despite us having different colleges and different backgrounds and things like that Um, and now actually there's like women in aerospace fellowships Um, so women and gender minority fellowships and things like that are so important because it gives people space to talk about issues that they're having um, that they might not necessarily be able to talk about in 
just the general workplace um, or might not feel comfortable talking about. So I it's really just important. came up with their catchphrase space, to, uh-huh. space to talk. I mean, space to talk. <laughs> come on. Oh my gosh. It was right there. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry for everyone that groaned at that dad joke. Um, oh <laughs> I, I, I love that idea. So um, I'll nerd out on that one. Um, and then, so what I was actually trying to queue up was like any other societies or, or anything else that you took a part of at mm-hmm. Yale? We're yeah, all, we're so, all wondering. We're all wondering. Yeah. We've all seen that movie. Some, some whispers about secret senior societies. So um, there's a little bit of the scoop I can give, I guess. Um, so it's actually a very interesting process at Yale. Um, about a third of the senior class is, decides to be a part of a senior society. And what that means is you get just a random group of 16 strangers. Usually you don't know other people in your society um, when you get matched at the end of your junior year to a society. And you spend every Thursday and Sunday night together, traditionally. Um, so throughout your senior year. Are they and all secret? Um, for all the... More secret than others. There are, okay. there are big, big ones that have what's known as tombs around campus. So literally windowless buildings um, that have like very specific access to them. So you can only be in the society or be an alum of the society in order to get into them. And others just float from apartment to apartment or dorm to dorm um, and meet in different places. So mine was a little bit more casual and it was called Ink and Needle. And I got to know everyone in that group so well. Um, and yeah, so you do a bio, so you do a two to four hour story about your life where you talk about the things that matter the most to you. So your family, your values and everything. And that's how you get to know everyone so well throughout the year. So each one will have a bio every week. And then the person who's doing their bio that week will choose a fun activity for the Thursday night before it. So we did a lot of bowling or um, barcade. We'd go to an arcade that was also a bar, or like we do, we do fun stuff like that. Um, Ink yeah. and needle. So I mean, tattoos. I don't. Uh, <laughs> like, not really. A, there's like not really old an school. Okay. Oh, so it's secret. Sorry. Uh huh. It's no. It's 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 kind of secret, but uh, there's there's a bunch of different names so- names for societies that um don't really have an explanation what, so what interesting yeah i i don't want to get kicked off of uh, itunes here so we got to be careful um I know. <laughs> we can't, um, can't <laughs> it's an interesting facet of society i've never talked to anyone about like a within the running culture i mean it's there's a lot of super smart people in running there's a lot of just hard-working american badass type runners like it's there's such a such a microcosm of just like all of society within running and i love it because i get to talk to just about everyone um but thanks for sharing that hopefully i didn't get you in trouble no no it's wonderful but i i was just going to echo what you said i mean that's what i instantly drew me to running is you go to a race and people are doing it for all sorts of reasons all sorts of backgrounds everyone has their own unique challenge or struggle with a particular race and it's really inspiring to be part of that. And the running community is so encouraging. So I, I love that you just said that. It's just such a diverse community and people are attracted to it for so many different reasons. 
So I, I'd be pretty upset at myself if we didn't like nerd out and talk about space. And this is probably when the listener is going to turn this off, which is fine. Um, but for the three listeners that are still with us, <laughs> this is going to be good. I mean, I've never had an astrophysicist on to just completely pick your brain, ask you random questions. Um, let's start off with just something like super topical. Like when, when did you get interested in this topic? Because there's not many astrophysicists in the world. There's not many female astrophysicists. And was there like a book or, or a catalyst that got you interested in this field? Yeah, so this is a little anecdote here. I guess there, I've always been interested in math and science in general, um, but I didn't really know what area of math and science. So I actually I had a really supportive family. My family doesn't necessarily, they're not really involved in science. Um, but when I said I was interested in something, they did their best to help me with it. Um, so my mom got me this book called Math Doesn't Suck, written by Danica McKellar, who was on the Wonder Years, but she also um, ended up having a PhD in math. She, what? A, she got her PhD in math. Yeah, she's incredible. And she wrote these series of books like Math Doesn't Suck, Kiss My Math, like there's a couple others um, about different topics in math. So I think the Kiss My Math was like pre-algebra or something like that. Um, or math, math doesn't suck was pre-algebra. And it just taught, it's, it, it's aimed at young girls to get them into math. And it's very stereotypical, right? Because, you know, a lot of math books will have, you know, two cars are coming at each other and they explode. And it's, you know, very kind of... <laughs> Male-dominated, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And so this was like, hey, I want to go to the store and I like have this much money and I want to, you know, buy this makeup or whatever. And so it played into those stereotypes. But um, that's that definitely was a big impact of that um, impact into my interest in STEM because I didn't know what a PhD was. And I asked my mom, what what why does it say Dr. McKellar? What did she what is what does PhD mean? Um and she said, well, you know, it means that she came up with a unique theory in her field of math that contributed to the way math will be done for centuries. And I was like, whoa, I want to come up with a theory. So I sit down with my, like my rainbow sparkly notepad and I'm in eight, four, I'm fourth grade, eight years old, you know, and I try to like come up with my own theory and I definitely did math wrong and came up with like one equals zero. But after that, I was kind of hooked and, you know, I thought I came up with my own theory. So I kept just like asking questions about everything I was learning and space just became um, something super interesting to me after I went to my first um, public sky night. So that's why astronomy clubs and doing outreach is so important to me, um, because you never know what 10 year old is going to look through your telescope and say, oh, my God, that's Saturn and just tangibly realize that we can study these things that are so far away. Um, and impact the rest of their career because that's that's what happened to me. I was interested in the PhD, interested in research, and coming up with my own theories, and then that led into space. I have two telescopes. Don't tell anyone. Oh, you're gonna have to take them out sometime. I got a six-year-old, mm -hmm. and his fascination uh, is is he's pretty stoked about it. So that's and wonderful. We had wildfires too. Like we got all these <laughs> all these parts in the mail, and then we couldn't even see the sky. <laughs> It was awful. Oh, it was so bad here. <laughs> um, but just yeah, we'll, Colorado we'll, has a great dark sky. We'll yeah, we'll stay focused here. Um, 
I'm going to ask you just some, sometimes I ask people about random questions on running. I think I'm just going to ask random questions on space. What areas of science are you interested in? What areas of space are you interested in? Is there like something specific or are you just generally interested in it? Well, it definitely started as a general interest. Um, and then I realized that I needed to get all the background in it. And getting that background, you know, you learn in Astronomy 101 or whatever your first astronomy intro class is, whether it be high school or college, you kind of get an, a sense of the scope of different things you can study. So there's the things that are really close by. You can do planetary science and focus on the planets in our solar system. And you can take a step further out. Um, and you can do stellar um, stellar astronomy. So you can look at the different types of light that stars emit that are surrounding our, our Earth um, and examine different stellar characteristics within the different classifications of stars. Um, you can examine planets that orbit other stars, which is my interest. I, I like studying small, cool stars called M-dwarfs, as well as the planets that orbit them. So that, that's my main focus, and that was my research during undergrad. What, um, what's an M-dwarf? An M-dwarf, um, so I don't want to get totally in, uh, sidetracked with the astronomy classifications of stars, although I could totally go on about that forever. But essentially what you need to know is M-dwarfs are the smallest and dimmest types of stars, um, and they're fairly active, which means that they emit radiation that bombards the planets that orbit them. So, Are they dying, um, essentially? They're running out of fuel? Um, not actually. So every M-dwarf... So they, they actually last for trillions of years. So stars that are in this classifications, um, every star that has ever been formed that is an M-dwarf is still around today because their lifetimes are trillions of years. The activity is due to um, magnetic, uh, mostly magnetic fields um, within the stars that make them particularly prone to things like flares, which our sun experiences too, but on a much lower level. So they're stable, right? Like besides oh, the flares? Sweet. Yep, they're completely stable. Relatively like speaking, sun, yeah. But much smaller. They're about, um, you know, half the size of our sun or even smaller. Um, so they, they, they're, they're a range of size of M-dwarfs. But um, basically, scientists care about them because the stars are smaller. Therefore, it's easier to see signals for planets that are Earth-sized around those stars. So when we're looking for planets that orbit other stars, um, it's harder to see a small Earth-sized planet against a really big star that's really bright. And it's or it's much harder to see it around that type of star. And it's much easier to see it around a star that's small, right? Because it'll take up more more of that star's like, light when it passes in front of that star. And, and we're trying to detect what, it. What is it fundamentally that... Um is peaking the desire to find these these other planets. I actually think a lot of it's curiosity, but if you're thinking about it long term, like super long term, we're curious about, you know, what what caused life to exist on Earth. So we want to look at other planets in this and in, in the universe that um, have different atmospheric chemistry to them um, in order to determine what potential chemical combinations could lead to life. So we, we have an idea of what that looks like. So we're looking for similarities on other planets in order to find out if there are other planets that are potentially habitable for humans or a different form of life um, out there in the universe. So is it more of looking for 
options when we tank our our own planet here somehow uh and and honestly there's a variety of ways of doing that um or or is it looking for other life forms yeah so it's it's um you know i like to say what a lot of astronomers like to say is there's no planet b um you know even if we find a planet that has the potential to host life in some form or already may host a life. We just don't know what that life looks like. You know, the closest star would take us an unbelievable amount of time to get there. I think it's like 10,000 years or something. I think it's four and a half light years away. And what a light year is, is the speed of light is 300,000 meters per second. Um, I actually have to double check that. I think, yeah, it's 300,000 meters per second. And basically, when you say a light year, that's how long, how far light travels in a year at that speed. So at these incredible speeds, it'll still take light time to reach us from other stars. And if the nearest star is four and a half light years away, and I need to double check these numbers, like, don't quote me on that. Um, if the nearest star is four and a half light years away, that means that it would take traveling at the light, the speed of light for four and a half years in order to reach that star. And right now, that's just, I mean, that will never be something that we can do. In, so in my opinion, it'll it'll take centuries before we're able to get to that type of technology. I mean, when you... When you go through this and you have your own little thought experiments, like, do you think there's any, is Einstein correct? Like nothing can travel faster than the speed of light? Like are wormholes in in your head, like a reasonable possibility or like, I mean, is it just like a, in your head, is it speed of lights it? Like we just can't go faster than that there's no loopholes wormholes yeah so wormholes that's a whole interesting thing i would have to defer to a cosmologist on that because i am definitely um more of the stellar astronomer i study stars lights and stars light and stellar activity in the way that it affects exoplanets um so the planets that orbit those stars but i you know i wouldn't i wouldn't um you know rule out wormholes as a possibility now traveling faster than the speed of light no um that would technically be a way of doing it because of the curvature of space time however um i wouldn't i wouldn't say that we could travel faster than the speed of light no we can't nice i i don't want to like oh did you hear katie on that podcast like her dissertation for phd's thrown out (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't want to get kicked up by any um, So no, it does cannot- seem like you have to specialize, like, to a certain extent within this, the vastness of space. Like, you're, you're essentially focused in on, like, a very particular part of space. Um, tell me about what you're doing day-to-day at your current job. Like, are you... I assume there's a, a correlation here that your your fascination with Mdorfs and 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 looking at spectrums like relates to what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. Oh, absolutely. So when 
so astronomy is really important. Um, but what's as important as the analysis we astronomers do is the, the, the technology that collects the data that we are analyzing. Um, and so that kind of is how it relates. What I'm doing now relates to what I did in undergrad and what I studied during my research. Um, so what I do now is I focus on helping us build the observatories that are going to um, allow for future discoveries on the lines of atmospheric chemistry of planets that orbit other stars. So things I was talking about earlier with my research. Um, and every 10 years, the astronomy community gets together and does what's called a decadal survey. And they write a bunch of white papers that discuss um, the importance of different aspects of astronomy. So it could be, like I said, cosmology. So more of like studying the expansion of the universe, um, or it could be, you know, studying different aspects of planets that orbit our own sun. So people make arguments for all sorts of different avenues of study within astronomy. And then they decide what kind of observatories would need to be built in order to achieve those things and, and, and achieve those priorities. And so something that came out of that was the James Webb Space Telescope. That was um, a couple decades ago at this point. It's been under development. And um, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be the successor to Hubble, which is currently orbiting Earth. Um, and the Hubble's, meter, or Hubble's mirror is about a meter wide. And James Webb will have 18 different one-meter sections that will all work together 18 different one meter mirrors that will all work together as one telescope. And so that's the team that I'm working on right now at my company. Um, and we're helping manage the process to align the telescope after it launches in October of 2021. Pre pressure's on. This yeah. thing doesn't focus. So, yeah. so are we essentially going, so we're going from one mirror to, would you say 18? Yes. 18. So I'm trying to put that together. It seems like we're going from like a black and white TV in the 50s to like ultra high def. Yeah, I definitely like to clarify that James Webb and Hubble uh, space telescopes are serving different purposes for the astronomy community um, as much as James Webb is thought of as the successor to Hubble. So Hubble, for example, observes um, in a different wavelength range. So um, James Webb will be in infrared completely, which is like slightly um, lower wavelength than visible light. Um, so the light that we just see every day. Um, and Hubble was incredible because it's it's 30 years old at this point. So we've gotten it for 20, 20 years longer than it was originally intended to be used for. And it gave us the first deep look into the universe. So at one point, astronomers decided to stare out into the universe at a black, what what seemed like a black blank space of sky. Yeah. And they just used time on Hubble and collected light um, with a really long exposure and actually discovered the earliest known light in the universe through that. Um, by just staring at what seemed blank, they were able to collect light from very, very far away galaxies. Um, and they're far away because the universe is constantly expanding. And the light takes time for us to reach there, so therefore it's uh, reach us. So it's therefore the oldest light in the universe. Um, and then James Webb will be doing that, but um, at a much greater scale. Um, so it'll be able to look even further back. And it also just has so many more capabilities by being able to collect more light and just the technological advancements that have come in the last 20, 30 years. Um, 
compared to Hubble will um, allow astronomers to get even better data for new questions. Like I was, I was talking about like habitability of exoplanets and things like that. Is that a scientific way of saying aliens? Essentially. Aliens. Uh, that is a, that is a question most astronomers get. Um, not particularly aliens, just are planets able to host life as we know it in theory. Um, is kind of what we're we're looking at. So if we set this thing up right, will we will we see someone waving back at us? <laughs> uh, probably not. Probably not. Do you, um, there's do, you a- <laughs> do you believe in aliens? Because I'll, I'll start this off. I know you're a professional. This is what you do for your job. Wait, you're living. <laughs> this is what you've devoted your life to. Essentially, I do. I think it's mathematically. It's it's actually mathematically slanted towards that. Like, if you don't believe in any other life form in the entire universe, you're, like, kind of missing the numbers, you know? It's just, like, mathematically, there has to be something out there that's, like, somewhat cognizant of, of what's taking place around them. Um, but that's just my opinion. I'm just a... Joe Schmo runner over here with the podcast. So <laughs> this gets into some really interesting philosophical discussion. So I can give you my general take on it is do I believe that there is some form of life, even if it's totally different from what we look like or what we even understand microbes to be? Yes. Out yeah. there in the universe. Absolutely. I believe that something exists there. And this is totally just, you know, my opinion based on like my my science background, but not necessarily you know, should be taken for granted. So, um, I believe that there is life out there. Now, do I believe that there is intelligent life out there? This, this is where it gets a little philosophical, intelligent life being, you know, creatures that look like us. I don't, I don't, I have this belief that intelligent life tends to destroy itself. And so uh, the chances of us being able to contact another, like, quote-unquote alien race or something like that um you know and and have a correspondence is so slim yeah because you'd have to exist at the same point you'd have to exist in a place where you're actually able to contact each other so within the same not even galaxy but the same region of the galaxy and things like that and so the chances of that are slim but there are so many galaxies out there than we can even comprehend that i can't imagine that some form of life hasn't evolved somewhere else. I, I couldn't agree more, honestly. Like, and I'm not an expert at all, but it's like, let's just say each galaxy has one form of intelligence, intelligent life form. Galaxies are spaced so far apart for like 99% of them, right? That aren't colliding. Um, you can't communicate. Like, there's a time issue. And like you said, they probably destroyed themselves somehow if even if there were that opportunity so they can't really know of each other but don't do you think it's a safe probability that there's some form of of life within each galaxy whether it be a microbe or I a know about within, within each galaxy i would imagine i would like think to about that every galaxy and how many galaxies are there i know this is how many are there? I, I don't know. Like a grain of <laughs> what would Sagan say? It was like a, a 
grain of sand on all the beaches in the world? Absolutely. So, yeah, you really, I mean, these are, you're asking the same questions that made me want to be an astronomer. So I'll ask you like one or two more questions here. I think I had a Patreon supporter that was asking or saying like bonus points if you squeak in a question about dark matter. Um, I know that's not your field, but do you have any thoughts on dark matter? Is that actually um, something we should consider? Oh, absolutely. Something we should consider. I mean, so one of my idols actually just, well, proved the need for it. So Vera Rubin is one of the astronomers that I look up to. And she um, demonstrated that due to the way like galaxies, she she looked at the way galaxies um, rotate and things like that and discovered that there needs to be more mass than there was light that we could account for so mass associated with the light that we could account for and that's how she proved the existence of dark matter um and yeah so the statistics for it are are kind of crazy i mean only something like four percent of everything we know of as matter so things we can touch things we can feel um you know the normal periodic table stuff is what the universe is made out of the majority of it is dark energy, which is driving the universe's expansion. And then there's debates as to how the universe will end. Um, and again, this is not my field. so. Um, but there's debates as to how the universe will end, whether it'll be in a big crunch or a big freeze, or it'll um, you know, just keep expanding and rip apart, things like that. I mean, this is so far away that none of us have to have anxieties about it. But um, that's the majority of the, the the material in our universe is dark energy. And then there's dark matter, which is the most, the second most abundant. And then there's um, just the normal matter that we see on a periodic table. I mean, selfishly, I'll, I'll end with one last science related question here, space. And this is cosmology type stuff. I mean, do we understand gravity? This is kind of 101 Newton had an apple fall on his head. You know, Einstein kind of rewrote a lot of this. Um, Do we understand how gravity is actually affecting the universe and affecting us? Because there's so many relativistic points of view. It's hard to get an idea on what is movement. Does movement affect this stuff? Um, I mean... Do we even really know what what gravity is, as basic as that sounds? Yeah, no, we definitely do. So gravity, the simplest way to think about it, which simplest I use lightly, um, is the curvature of space-time. So that's we actually use that curvature to do things like find um, exoplanets through things called microlensing. Um, so it'll act like light from distant objects will bend around a foreground object, um, and we're able to see that increase in brightness from it essentially magnifying itself as it bends around a foreground object. Um, and so it, it, the, we know that the curvature of space time is something that exists because of like massive objects that, that create this curvature. Um, so we do understand gravity. There's a lot of other things that we, um, you know, are still trying to uncover more about like black holes and the specific, um, gravitational characteristics surrounding those um but i'm no by no means an expert and couldn't really speak to the um you know open-ended questions in that particular field but yeah gravity is um i I like i never ask open-ended questions (laughs) 
Yeah, well, there's <laughs> astronomy. That's pretty much the field of astronomy is just open-ended questions. And um, that's what's exciting is piece by piece, um, even, you know, data set by data set, we're taking apart little puzzles and, and contributing in our own small subsections to unraveling the mysteries of our universe. I mean, I'll I'll share a tidbit and then we'll we'll move on from this. Like I literally was close at a point in my life to devoting all of my mental energy, my my entire life towards the study of gravity. Um just because I yeah, I I really found um that whole topic very fascinating and and I think black holes were probably the catalyst for that, but um, I think it was seventh grade reading Hawkins book got me, uh, really fascinated. And then a seventh grade science teacher or 10th grade science teacher really undermined that whole pursuit. But, um, <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll save that for another day. Yeah. Um, shifting just really briefly while we're nerding out on this stuff, hypersonics, it sounds like you're kind of in that field since space policy has a lot to do with tracking things in orbit and i mean tell me more about this fascination you have with space policy because i mean 101 what what even is that and then i want to hear more about hypersonics we we hear about them on like cnn occasionally they'll like cross the news that the u.s is way behind in that or or whatever but I want to hear your thoughts on on those two things. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm sorry to 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 punt again on the hypersonics. I don't know as much about that, um, but I do. I can do space policy 101 for you. So space policy 101: um, the things you should care about in space. I think it would be fascinating if the world got together and said, "Let us." have a day without space technologies and technologies that rely on space. What would that look like just to get the general public aware of what would happen if we lost all capabilities of our space technologies? First of all, we couldn't use GPS. We couldn't figure out where we're going and people are over-reliant on GPS these days, me included. We are, I- we're going <laughs> to freak out our listenership with this thought experiment. <laughs> right, a yeah. bunch of runners with without Strava? No GPS. Right? <laughs> no GPS. Um, so, yeah, so there's that. Um, you know, we wouldn't be able to use our ATM cards. We would just have so many issues with, like, internet. We couldn't get the weather, things like that. Um, so I think it would be very interesting uh, to have a day without space technologies just to get people to understand. So space is extremely important to every aspect of our day-to-day lives. And we need space policy so that it's regulated in a proper way to allow companies to innovate and, um, you know, make advancements that will benefit everyone in space, but also to um, do so in a way that will allow space to remain accessible for years to come, both for crewed space flight, um, so where humans are actually going up into space, as well as for just general use um, for what we use it for now. Um, and that's really a nerve wracking thing, because I'm sure you've heard about proliferation of these small satellite constellations where there's just so many of them coming up and then they are affecting 
you know, they have to maneuver out of the way of other objects that are up in space and you have to prevent collisions and um, all of that. So there's yeah, a lot I mean, of moving parts. Musk just launched, a, I think, a thousand, a thousand of them the other day. It's like... Well, yeah. I don't know about a thousand, but I mean, I think that that's how many they've launched recently, like total. Maybe it's a hundred. Yeah. Over a um, hundred SpaceX launched. Yeah. I mean, do you see space sort of uh, like as the internet? Like maybe space is like the internet of 1990. It's unregulated. It's kind of like do whatever you guys want because most people don't even understand what's going on up there. Um is that a, a bad correlation? Like, does that not make any sense at all? Um, no, it does make sense. A lot of people compare space to like a frontier and a wild west kind of situation. Um, you know, I don't know if that's completely true just because there have been a lot of, um, you know, regulations that have come out both through like the executive branch over the last couple administrations. Um, and also like they've established things such as the national space council and other organizations that are dedicated to having these discussions and, um, you know, people who are dedicating their careers to having, to making sure that these regulations are in place. Um, so I think that there are definitely efforts being made. And so it's not completely unregulated, but there's definitely more that needs to be done. And this will only become more important. So we have an opportunity in the next 10 years to really define what space will look like for the future. Um, and we have to use that wisely and carefully, which is why I am motivated to go back to school and study space situational awareness and study how we track things in orbit and how we... Um, you know, determine, translate scientific data into tasks for satellite operators in order for them to move out of the way in the, in the case of a potential conjunction between two objects in space, et cetera. So, yeah, so that's what I want to study. Um, and I think it'll be exciting to get in on the ground floor. I mean, I, my novice calculations are like, cause I did a few back of the envelope calculations and like hypersonic uh, weapons, missiles, and and I'm like trying to calculate how fast they go, and then if they're in orbit, how long it would take them to go to the ground. And yeah, it was it was quite disturbing actually when you run those numbers, uh, how quick things can happen. Um, so oh, sure. If you've heard of anti-satellite missiles as well, um, a lot of countries are doing anti-satellite missiles, not a lot, but a couple countries, including the U.S., have done anti-satellite missile tests and things like that, um, that destroy something in orbit, and then there's just pieces of debris that just float around perpetually in orbit, and obviously there's things like um, drift from the atmosphere that will cause them to eventually be brought down and burn up in our atmosphere, but... There, there's definitely a lot of pieces that are they're moving and you have to be very careful about. I mean, my issue is there's one moving with gravity and one moving against gravity. And the, the differential was like, uh, like it seemed like, I mean, unless unless we're going to get into lasers and all, all kinds of like super high tech things, there's kind of a disadvantage to having to send something up against gravity versus with gravity so that's where i was a little like uh i'm done with this back of the envelope let's sh just <laughs> shred this envelope and move on 
Yeah, you can't think too hard about it. Otherwise, it just really can be paralyzing. <laughs> There's just so many questions that are so, out there that need to be answered. Last question on space. Did Space Command, I, I think it's called Space Command, moving to Colorado affect in any way your decision to, to moving to the state? And how do you see that whole branch building out? Yeah, so the the whole idea of space defense is really interesting. I think there's definitely the need, a lot of the language around it is deter, defend, defeat. Um, that's what, you know, the language of like space defense capabilities in the nation is. And I definitely think we need to focus most on deter. And I think there should be a fourth D there that's diplomacy first, um, more than anything. Obviously, that's difficult when you're talking about defense specifically. But I mean, we need to exercise every single diplomatic avenue we can in order to make sure we're all on the same page internationally as to how we want the future of space to look like. Um, so so multi multilateral or, or what do you absolutely i think yeah. we need to involve um particularly people or particularly countries that um are our competitors i don't think it should just be allies i think russia and china should be involved as well um in talking about how space should be used and developing those those regulations obviously there's some some bit of an idealistic vision there um because not everything, not all those uh, cooperations are possible. Um, however, I think that's absolutely essential for all being on the same page. But, you know, I guess Space Force in a way is is fairly realistic in terms of like what capabilities are going to be needed. But the way it's going, it's going, people are going about it now with belligerent language is actually pretty dangerous. So I definitely like that focus on, I definitely think there should be more focus on diplomacy deter and defend um, um, as far as like the, the D's that represent the um, space defense go. Um, now, Space Command being in Colorado didn't necessarily influence directly my move. However, there are a lot of defense industrial base companies that <laughs> aerospace tends to be classified under that work in Colorado. So, I mean, Ball, where I work, is a great um, contractor for the defense industry and they do a bunch of other wonderful things too, like build James Webb space telescope. Um, and so I, I just, by happenstance, the aerospace industry happens to be rooted here because of like Colorado Springs and space command and everything like that. And so, um, it's just a, it's a nice benefit that I get to live in Colorado as part of the aerospace industry. <laughs> I mean, for the listener's background, just remember, if that next telescope after Hubble doesn't focus, it's Katie's fault. I'm not to blame. <laughs> I'm not to blame. I promise. <laughs> um, what, what advice do you have for any, any young women that might be listening that are thinking about getting into this field? Because it sounds like you're in pretty rare territory. Yeah, that is such a great question and so important. Um, find your mentors. Find that person that will stick up for you. Um, and yeah, if you can find people who are like you, both in your peer group and um, mentors and people to look up to, that's going to help so much because it'll keep you on track and it'll they'll be there to lift you up when you need it. Um, and I guess don't be afraid to ask questions because – I was really lucky and just kind of had almost a bold naivety and I just kind of went for things and asked people 
questions until, you know, I, I drove them nuts. Um, but most people really do want to help you. And if they don't, then it's, it's not necessarily worth talking to them anyway. So people in the industry will want to talk to you if you reach out to them. So that's, that's my best advice is ask questions and find your support group. I, I still love that you reached out to like 12 people before you got your first email back on your initial internship. It's just beautiful. Like people don't hear the failure side of things enough. Like it's just, it's nice that you're so open and willing to share that. So I know this is a running podcast. We should probably talk about running. Um, <laughs> I, I want to finish the last five, 10 minutes here. I want to hear about how you're going about training for this 50 miler. You've done two marathons. First one sounds like it was a bit of a struggle, like, you know, gutting it out for 16 miles. And most likely the charity donations were in your mind for every step of that 16 miles is my guess. But, um, tell me about your improvement from that marathon to then, running the Marine Marathon, Marine Corps Marathon 45 minutes faster, I think the following year or, or two okay. years later? Oh, it was night and day. Um, my, So like I said, I ran cross country in high school and my coaches were fantastic because they built the foundation. They taught me what tempo meant. They taught me what race pace meant. And I got to learn what it felt like to do a speed workout. So that wasn't as scary as just starting on my own and doing that based on some internet plan that I found. Um, so my first time training for a marathon, I decided I was going to do it in December of 2016, started training December or January of 2017, and then ran my first half in March, was on pace to run the marathon in October. And I, um, had an issue because I hurt my foot, basically peroneal tendonitis in my first half. Um, so that was March, 2017. And I couldn't run for like two weeks cause I was in so much pain. I ended up going and actually getting fit for running shoes, which I should have done with, instead of just <laughs> wearing the same old brand that I wore in high school cross country. It's cause it's a totally different level when you're training at that distance. Um, and uh, then when I picked up running again, I realized that I couldn't just jump right back into where I had been, but only after I tried to do that. So I tried to do that. And then at that point, my weeks had, my hips had kind of lost some of their strength. Um, so I actually developed pretty bad it band syndrome. So what I thought was going to be a six month process to train for my first marathon was actually a 10 month grueling process. My first marathon was supposed to be in June of that year. I was only going to take six months to train for it. Um, and I ended up having to skip out on that. So I drove to Maine with my best friend and watched her run a marathon by herself in the baking sun that I was supposed to be running with her. Um, and I did not, and I felt really bad about that. So that's motivation. If I've ever heard it (laughs) exactly to watch her finish that and be in pain, but do it anyway. I just got the extra strength, um, to finish out my season despite having really bad it band syndrome. So I had it pretty well managed by doing strength training, um, and focusing on like hips and glutes. But then a week before my race, my marathon in October, this is the first one. I got bronchitis. So I woke up unable to speak the Sunday before my race, like a full week. And then I, it, it meant that I barely could run cause I couldn't breathe. 
Um, so I barely ran three miles that week before my marathon and all of the hip problems that I had had all season and managed came back. Um, and so by mile 10 of my race, I had started limping cause my IT band kicked in and I don't know if any of you had have, have had IT band syndrome before and it's not necessarily dangerous. Like it won't lead to more injury unless you really go crazy on it, but it hurts and you want to fall over with every step. So I've made it to mile 16. Um, a woman wearing a Boston marathon jacket jammed her leg or her finger into my, the side of my leg and was just like, where does it hurt? Is it the IT band? And I trusted her cause she had that Boston marathon jacket on. She's like, I'm a trainer. And I was able to run for two miles after that. Cause she kind of broke up some of that scar tissue, but I limped the rest of the way and finished in five and a half hours. Um, and I just, it was such a wonderful experience being in a crowd of 25,000 people and having Marines cheer you on. And my dad's a Marine. And it was just so emotionally just cathartic that I decided to sign up again next year and really honed in on my strength training in the off season and really focused on adding speed workout and doing shorter runs, but speedier runs. Um, and I beat my time by 45 minutes. So four hours and 48 minutes is my current standing PR. And I'm actually going to try to beat that. Nice. In a week. That's awesome. So, wait, yeah. wait, when, when are you going for that? Uh, next week I'm driving down to Phoenix, uh, Arizona, and I'm going to do a solo, uh, supported solo marathon supported by my other best friend, um, who's driving down there with me. That's awesome. Um, what, what questions do you have in terms of your first 50 miler? I mean, have you talked to many ultra runners about what you're going to take on in a few months? I've only ever read things. Or wait, so, it's March, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, end of mm. March. So I guess what do you do when you just physically can't run anymore? How do you, I mean, have you ever gotten to that point? Have you, you know, how do you break through that? I mean, it's, you got to trickle in nutrition constantly. It's mm -hmm. not like you can just immediately correct something and... Staying, staying on top of hydration allows your stomach to digest food and trickle it in the entire time. So a lot of the time I hear about IT bands hurting you, and that happens to me also when I'm dehydrated. So that's kind of in the back of my head. But I would say, it you know, it'll come in waves. So there are times where you'll you'll question everything you'll hit low points but just have a pre-programmed response in your brain ready to go telling you this is just a temporary low like i can get through it i just need to make sure my hydration's on point i probably need more food because most most of the time it's bonking and then also reminding yourself like it takes a few minutes for your body to digest food and, and restore energy levels. So it doesn't, don't hammer a gel and expect it to hit your system in a minute. It Sometimes it might take 10 minutes. It might take 20 minutes, like depending on how depleted you are. So again, just balance your hydration. That'll let your stomach digest food that you trickle in constantly. And hopefully you won't hit any kind of massive wall, but just run within yourself the whole time. You'll know, like, if you're not running within yourself, 
I mean, a good test is just closing your mouth. Can you run with your mouth closed? If you can't, then you're probably not at your 50-mile pace. Right. But, yeah, you'll hit lows. Just just know about them now. Mentally prepare. Sorry, Katie. You're going to freaking smack the wall at mile 20 and then at 40, but then you'll cycle through it. So you'll make it to the finish. I, I love that advice. And should I worry about time? How do I, no. how do I go about that? It's your first, it's your <laughs> no. first ultra. The bit, the biggest <laughs> thing that you could do wrong is go out hard, suffer and hate that distance. Like enjoy the hell out of your first 50 miler. Take it all in. I mean, as long as you're not like bumping up against cutoffs, just take it in and enjoy it. It's your first ultra. No one ever asks about what your time is at a 50 miler because their minds are so blown that you ran 50 miles. So just don't no, Don't don't worry about it. <laughs> I love that. And yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I've had to explain to people, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I wanted to say this is I'm not running 50 milers to blow people's minds. Like I'm not running, I didn't choose to run a 50 miler to be like impressive or whatnot. You know, if you don't enjoy the fact that you're going to try to do this really crazy thing just for the sake of it being really crazy and something that you don't think you can do, then you're going to be miserable the entire time training for it. Yeah. So I, I think that's really important too, is that like, I'm excited to be able to say that I did this really crazy thing, but I'm doing it for me. I developed a whole, whole platform on that concept alone right there. I couldn't agree more. It's all about like enjoying your training because when you're getting prepared for a 50 miler, you're putting in multiples in training of those miles. And I just personally, I love the deep meditation that takes place during training. Um, and yeah, the meditation during the race, I mean, it's a cherry on top during the race, but I mean, I can just reflect on the cosmos and, and run and have light thought or deep thought, but get away from the world for a while, as you know, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's nothing like it. Absolutely. Well, I want to hear more about your marathon. I also want to follow up with you when you either are getting ready or you do the 50 miler, but without a doubt in my head, if you're ready for a marathon, I think if you're super smart, you'll, you'll find a way, um, you know, to get through that 50 miler, even if you're not trained for it, I think you'll, you'll figure out a way and, and you're definitely smart enough. So, <laughs> um, I- stubborn i will admit so <laughs> just we'll get just it. have fun with it stay in touch thanks for taking so much of your time to chat about random tangents that i find absolutely fascinating hopefully the three listeners that are still with us uh found it fascinating too but where can people follow you katie on on social media yeah so i'm most active on twitter so you can follow me at K-A-T-I-E-M-E-L-2-5. So Katie Mel 25 and that's also my Instagram handle. Thank you for taking all your time tonight, and let's stay in touch. I can't wait to hear about your first ultra finish. Thank you so much. 
And that was episode 161. Big thank you to Katie for taking so much of her time. Really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. I thought it was fun. Big shout out to Exoskin and Hammer Nutrition. Couldn't do this podcast without you. And big shout out to the Patreon supporters. I'll leave the shout outs at the very end of this episode. Don't forget to enjoy your training. See you next week, guys. Thanks. Shout out to Brian Sands. He's a big supporter. And all you shout out supporters, Hunter, Michael, Andrew, Caleb, David, York Beach, Landon, Pat, Chris, Jared, Ray, Matthew, Scott, Dennis. Really appreciate it. 